Hello, I am Joe Garrity of the Close Up Foundation, and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our Close-Up Teacher Program podcast, Building Bridges. Today on Building Bridges, we'll be honoring the memories of some courageous Americans who were either killed in action or severely wounded in defense of our country and our freedoms. We'll be featuring the stories of Daniel Inouye, William Bill Janoust, Adam Brown, and Jesse L. Brown. Joining us today for this session are Ian Freed, Olivia Dombowski, John Cheeseman, Dr. Dan Wallace, and Michael Botang. This session was recorded on May 6, 2021. One of the most respected and distinguished senators of the 20th century, Daniel Inouye, is best known for representing the state of Hawaii for 53 years in the halls of the United States Capitol. But his military service is even more impressive. To talk about Senator Inouye's service, we have Ian Freed. Ian, what was so distinctive about Daniel Inouye? Well, Joe, you and I have both lived in Washington a long time and walking around uh, Congress and the city. Um, we knew Senator Inouye not only for his reputation, for thoughtfulness and integrity, but when you saw him walking around Capitol Hill, you could easily see his wound from battle, a missing right arm. And yeah. while he was proud of the fact that he served in the military, he didn't discuss combat much, including the confrontation in which he lost that arm. But it's truly the stuff of legend. But what is even more striking when you think about it is that while he was fighting for his country during World War II, other Japanese Americans back home in the United States were forced to live in internment camps, somehow under the guise of uh, national security. So then why did he join the military? Well, for one, you know, he was born in Hawaii and he was a senior in high school when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. His family could actually see the smoke and the flashes from anti-aircraft shells from their yard. Japanese fighters flew directly over their roof. So what does young Daniel decide to do? He runs down to the local Red Cross so that he can help the wounded from the attack. Wow. And then... Yeah. Um, and then a few months later, as soon as he graduates from high school, he goes to enlist in the military. But of course, being of Japanese descent at that point, he is not allowed to join. He says, though I was a citizen of the United States, I was declared to be an enemy alien. And as a result, not fit to put on the uniform of the United States. So, Terrible. yeah, it's, you know. It's the history, and but he but he then enrolls in a pre-med program at the University of Hawaii. But in '43, the army changes its tune. They're, they change their policy to allow ethnic Japanese to join the fight. And as soon as that happens, Inouye drops his studies and enlists, despite those earlier concerns about his loyalty and the fact that a year earlier the government began sending ethnic Japanese on the continental of the United States to those internment camps. Now, notably. They did not do this to the Japanese community in Hawaii, and that's because they were so numerous and so integrated in the culture, placing them in such camps would actually have been too detrimental 
to the local economy. Hmm. So anyway, in a way is assigned to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up exclusively of ethnic second-generation Japanese. And when they go to combat, they are sent to Europe. You can imagine why, out of fears that if they went to the Pacific oh Theater, they could turn sides and like refuse to fight the Japanese soldiers or something. Oh, my goodness. So even after he joins the military, he and other Japanese-American soldiers are still subject to discrimination. Right. So the regiment's commanding officers were all Caucasian. And despite the fact that it was the most decorated unit for its size after the war, many of its members never received the honors they deserved. But it is clear that the second generation Japanese Americans were incredibly courageous. In 1944, the regiment was sent to Italy and then moved up to France where they successfully rescued another battalion that was surrounded by German forces, even though the operation cost themselves many of their own soldiers, a lot of wounded and killed. In a way, himself almost became a casualty in the battle when he was struck in the chest with a bullet, but incredible luck. The shot dropped off after hitting his lucky silver dollars that he always carried oh in his breast pocket. Oh my goodness. Wow, that is an incredible story. Right. He was awarded a commission right there on the battlefield for his bravery, immediately becoming a second lieutenant and was later awarded a Bronze Star. But it was his heroics the following year in Italy that would put even Rambo to shame. Oh, really? What happened? Well, the 442nd Regiment returned to Italy and then on April 21st, 1945, and that date's important because it's less than three weeks before VE Day, the official end of the war in Europe. But on that date, Lieutenant Inoue led his platoon in an assault on a German-held ridge near the village of San Terenza. So it's like this. Three German machine guns opened fire at Inoue and his men as they attacked. A bullet shot through Inoue's torso, but he continues to advance, still shouting encouragement to his platoon, still throwing grenades at the enemy. He crawls then to within five yards of the German artillery and threw two more grenades in, killing all the enemy machine guns. He then turns to the next encampment, kills the crew of a second machine gun unit with his own submachine gun. So at this point, I think you'd agree, you would say, this is incredible. Mm. But it gets even more phenomenal. In a way, proceeded to pull the pin on another gr grenade pulls his arm back, and prepares to lob it at a third machine gun nest. And then these are his own words from an oral history. So, the, so he explains it like this. As I drew my arm back, all in a flash of light and dark, I saw him, that faceless German, like a strip of motion picture film running through a projector that's gone berserk. One instant, he was standing waist high in the bunker. And the next, he was aiming a rifle grenade at my face from a range of 10 yards. And even as I cocked my arm to throw, he fired and his rifle grenade smashed into my right eyeball and exploded. I looked at my dangling arm and saw my grenade still clenched in a fist that suddenly didn't belong to me anymore. So that's pretty graphic description. He has a useless arm. But what he does next is something that I can't believe because just in the few seconds, as in a way yells to his men to keep back, he actually has the sense of mind to pry the live grenade from his mangled arm with his other arm and hurls it at the enemy soldier before it explodes. Oh my God. I know. And at this point, I think you would agree. 
Unbelievable. You, it's, yeah. At this point, I think you would agree that most humans would say, good job, job well done, right? Yeah. Yet, despite a gunshot wound to his body and an arm that is essentially destroyed, in a way continues to advance. And, is, and he fires his submachine gun with his one good arm, crawling through the dirt. He finally falls unconscious when he's shot in the leg. That is pretty unbelievable. And it's amazing that he, sur- he survived it. I know. And the doctors in the field hospital actually didn't think he would make it. But in a way, insisted he would. And he insisted they operate and cut off his useless arm. And he does recover. And after recovery, he goes back to Hawaii. And he uses the benefits of the GI Bill to get a degree in economics and politics. And then he went to law school at George Washington University and returns to Hawaii to get involved in local politics leading up to statehood. Now, when Kauai does become a state in 1959, he is their very first representative. And then in 1962, he's elected to the Senate, in which he serves for the rest of his life. Now, I think you know this from his reputation. In the Senate, he was beloved by all his colleagues. Democrats, Republicans didn't matter. He served on the Watergate Investigative Committee and was the Senate chairman of the committee investigating the Iran-Contra affair, which found that the Reagan administration sold arms to Iran to fund the rebels in Nicaragua. But he was selected due to his known integrity. And just as an example, he was also the first chairman of the Senate Select Intelligence Committee. But the thing is, Joe, it took over 50 years for him to get the recognition he deserved for his military service. In the 1990s, Congress and the military did a process that began to review cases of military heroism that may have not been recognized due to racism in various forms. And as a result of this review, in the year 2000, Senator Inouye was finally awarded the Medal of Honor. When he died in 2012, he lied in state in the Capitol Rotunda, and in 2013, he was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Barack Obama. All of which was richly deserved. Um, Definitely. I think you would agree we all owe a great deal to Daniel Inouye. You are listening to Building Bridges. I believe you have a story about a cameraman on Iwo Jima, and we're not talking about the most famous one, Joe Roosevelt. Is that right? You are correct. You are correct, Ian. We're going to talk today about Sergeant William Bill Janoust, United States Marine. He was born on October 12, 1906, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. After high school, he moved to Minnesota to attend college, and then he got married. On February 11th, 1943, at the age of 36, he left home and his wife of 17 years, Adelaide, when he enlisted in the Marines as an infantryman and photographer. I see. So how does Bill wind up actually on Iwo Jima? Well, Bill was part of the 4th Marines Division sent to Iwo Jima in the last months of World War II. The island of Iwo Jima was vitally important, as you know, Ian, because it had two airfields. Yeah, it has these two airfields that are crucial for refueling stops. So it's going to play a critical role in the upcoming planned invasion of the main islands of Japan. So when the Marines land on February 19th, 1945, 
they are met with 21,000 Japanese soldiers on the island, most in very fortified positions, bunkers, caves, and a network of over 11 miles of tunnels. The most important high ground was on the southern part of the island, and it was called Mount Suribachi. Now, that's what they wanted to win first. So they go after Mount Suribachi, and it takes four bloody days of battle. The Sounds Marines, like a pretty daunting task. Uh, it was a very daunting task because they're all in caves and they're trying to fight their way up the island, but they're really fortified positions. So they were exposed, uh, you know, working their way up the mountain. But but it is a huge victory for Lieutenant Shear and his men. So they wanted to mark this uh, significant achievement. So they found this broken Japanese water pipe laying on the ground and they attached the flag to it and they raised the American flag on this water pipe. But it was the first foreign flag ever raised on Japanese soil. So Lewis Lowry was there, the only photographer there, and he gets this historic moment on, on, uh, on, in his camera. But Colonel Chandler Johnson ordered a second raising of the day with a much larger flag. So uh, that's probably, that's it's the second one where it's the iconic photo. Exactly, exactly. So it's a much larger larger flag. So it makes it makes a statement. Everybody on the island can see the colors. So this time, Joe Rosenthal, the still photographer for the Associated Press, and Bill Ginost, a sixteen millimeter cameraman, both captured the second raising. So. What happens from there? Joe Rosenthal went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for this historic photo, a well-deserved prize indeed. And Felix DeWeldon used his photo as the model for the Marine Corps Memorial. Now, Bill Janast, on the other hand, was with his unit nine days later when they throw a grenade into a cave filled with Japanese soldiers. His fellow Marines asked Bill for his camera light because it was getting dark and they wanted to see if there were any survivors in the cave. Sergeant Janaz said, not only will I give you my light, but I will lead you into the cave. Why would he do that? That's incredible. It's the type of guy that he was. The remaining Japanese soldiers in the cave, when they saw the light, opened fire and almost killed Bill instantly with this onslaught of bullets. So it does allow the other Marines to scamper and get out of the cave, and then the order comes down to bomb the opening. So Sergeant Ganaus's body is in the rubble. Um, so they're never able to retrieve his body. He was one of 250 Americans who were never recovered on Iwo Jima. Mount Suribachi took four days to, for the victory. It would take over a month to secure the rest of the island. So Sergeant Ganaus is one of 6,821 men, American men, who paid the ultimate price for their country in this pivotal battle of World War II. Yet as high a number as that was, it was one-third the number of Japanese losses. The Japanese had 21,060 men on the island from the beginning of the battle, and only 216 surrendered to the Americans. 3,000 more hit out in caves for months and even years, the last one coming out of the caves in 1951. But 
the rough estimate is between 17 and 18,000 Japanese soldiers were killed in action on Iwo Jima. Now, Bill Janos may have never been found, but his 16 millimeter color camera was found. And the film was developed and later transferred to black and white footage for the newsreels. And it was played over and over again, becoming nearly as famous as the photograph. Well, I've seen those, those newsreels uh, often, and it's really dramatic the way that you see the soldiers so quickly and together as, as a team raise that flag. It really makes it so real. And you may have seen it in a couple of movies. It was featured in a few motion pictures as well. So while there were many copies of this film footage that he took, the original has been lost to history. So despite paying the ultimate price for his country and capturing this historic footage, the name of Bill Janost has mostly been forgotten. Now, while the Marines who raised the flag became celebrities as they toured the country after the war to raise money and support for the military, eventually, though, they figure out that a few of those men were misidentified. The real flag raisers were Sergeant My Michael Strank, Corporal Harlan Block, Private First Class Franklin Susley, who were all killed in action during the battle. Now, Block was properly identified in 1947, so pretty shortly after the war, but Susley was misidentified for 70 years. Uh, and the other men were Privates First Class Ira Hayes, Harold Schultz, and Harold Keller. Harold Schultz was finally identified in 2019. And why this is important to this story is because Bill Ganow's film footage played a big role in properly identifying the flag raisers. I see, but when we think of that photograph, Joe Rosenthal really gets most of the fame and prestige. You know, of course he won the Pulitzer Prize, but did Bill ever get any recognition? So Sergeant Janaus was posthumously awarded the Bronze Star Medal with a Combat B and a Purple Heart, but not for Iwo Jima. That was for his heroic actions in a firefight on Saipan on July 9th, 1944. So you can see this was the type of guy Bill was. In 1995, however, finally, a bronze plaque was placed on Mount Suribachi to honor Sergeant Janaus. And in 2007, He's starting to get some recognition, so they send a team of seven experts over to Iwo Jima to see if they could find the remains of his body. But they reported that the body was unrecoverable. And today, the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation presents Sergeant Janow's award for documentary and short subjects for a video that deals creatively with the Marine Corps heritage or Marine Corps life. So, Ian. In the end, he does finally start to get some of his due. You are listening to Building Bridges. So, John, you are here to recall the life of Ensign Jesse L. Brown, U.S. Navy aviator. Who is Ensign Brown and what makes his story so noteworthy? Well, Jesse Brown... To sum it up, before I get into the life, was the first African-American naval aviator in the history of the United States Navy. He was born in 1926 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, one of six children born to Julia and John Brown. Julia was a part-time school teacher, 
His father, John, was a clerk in a warehouse for a grocery store. Um, everything was going fine, and then the Great Depression hits, and his father loses his job and has to go 10 miles out of town to work as a laborer at a turpentine factory. Uh, but then he'll be laid off from that job in 1938 and has to take up sharecropping, growing corn and cotton to support the family. So Jesse and his brothers will be working with dad a lot doing the sharecropping. But Jesse is a very gifted young man, uh, both academically and athletically. In high school, he is going to excel in both areas, particularly in mathematics. He's always going to be finishing at the top of his classes in mathematics. Um, but before high school, at the age of six, his father takes some of the kids to an air show, which, you know, were big things between the world wars. And that's, he got bitten by the bug of flying and he vowed from that day forward someday he was going to learn to fly and become a pilot. So when he graduates in 1944 from high school, uh, he's looking at college. Now he's looking at Ohio State. His principal, not thinking that he's going to be able to get into Ohio State because of his race, tries to steer him toward Tuskegee Institute and also Howard University here in Washington, D.C. But Jesse is very adamant about going to Ohio State. And one of the big reasons is because it is the alma mater of one of his childhood heroes, a world famous U.S. Olympic athlete by the name of Jesse Owens. So the inspiration of Jesse Owens pushed him toward going to Ohio State and he gets in. Now, he's going to be working two part-time jobs while he's at college, uh, one as, as a janitor in a department store, and also at night a part-time job loading boxcars for the Pennsylvania Railroad. But even holding down these two jobs, he still keeps his, his academic record high. Then, a couple of years later, in 1947, he sees a, a poster in one of the buildings on campus that's announcing that the Naval ROTC program is starting a new uh, Navy flight training program. So he goes down to the recruiter and says, I'd like to sign up. The recruiter's like, but you're black. Uh, even if you pass the exams, uh, the Navy's never had a black aviator, so I doubt you would ever get it. So what was Jesse's reply? Well, I want to be the first black aviator. So the recruiter relents, gives in, says, okay, we'll give you the test. He passes all of them with flying colors. He passes the physical, and he gets accepted to the program in 1947. At the same time, he marries his childhood sweetheart, Daisy, which was against Navy regulations. Once you're in this program, you were prohibited from getting married until if you made it to flight training and graduated from flight training. But he keeps that secret. It's a very good secret. Um, he goes off to several different Naval Air Stations going through pre-flight checking and then wins the ultimate prize, gets sent to Pensacola Naval Air Station in Florida where he's given flight training and he passes, passes it with flying colors, making all five landings on an aircraft carrier flawlessly. So in October of 1948, now this is just several months after um, Truman President Truman's executive order of 9981, which begins the integration of the armed forces. That October, at 22 years old, 
Jesse Brown gets his gold Navy aviator wings and becomes the first African-American naval aviator. Quite an accomplishment. One little thing happens, the Navy wants to celebrate for PR purposes that they've got this black aviator. So they give his photo off onto the wire and Life Magazine picks it up and he's published in Life Magazine. So he's sort of become nationally famous for a short time. So that's the beginning of the life of this young man. Pretty incredible considering he was able to accomplish all of that by the age of 22 as well. Um, so Brown fulfills his long desire to become a pilot and is doing so becomes the first African-American naval aviator. Is that the end of his story? What happens after that? Olivia, sadly, it is not. Um, once he became the aviator in 48, he's now obligated to do a number of years of service with U.S. Navy, which he challenges, he takes with relish. He's assigned of uh, Naval Flight Squadron VF-32 and ultimately gets transferred, his, his squadron gets transferred to the USS Leyte, an aircraft carrier. Uh, along comes 1950 and the Korean War. His aircraft carrier is assigned to Task Force 77, which is sent to the Korean Peninsula to fly air cover for United Nations ground forces operating in theater. Um, on December 4th, 1950, he's on a flight over the infamous Chosin Reservoir, uh, sort of a cold, freezing, hellish landscape now that the Chinese have poured 600,000 troops across the border into Korea, into the war mix, catching a lot of American ground forces off guard around the reservoir. So he and his squadron are flying support missions, trying to keep the Chinese at bay so that our folks can retreat safety. He shot down, he crash lands on the side of a mountain. Um, he, but unfortunately he's caught in the wreckage of his airplane and can't extract himself. So his wingman, disobeying orders, crash lands next to him, goes over, tries to extricate him, can't do it, falls in for helicopter rescue, a U.S. Marine Corps helo rescue pilot flies in and the two of them try to extract Jesse, but it's to no avail. He's just too caught up and he's he's basically bleeding to death in sub-freezing temperatures. Um, before he dies, he turns to his wingman, Lieutenant Thomas Hudner, and says, tell my wife, Daisy, I love her very much. Um, and those were his last words when he dies. Uh, they make it out back to the aircraft carrier, and the captain of the aircraft carrier decides to give Brown what he called a warrior's funeral. So the squadron flew in the next day, loaded with napalm, and they basically bombed the whole site, burning all the aircraft and also Brown's body so it wouldn't fall into the hands of the enemy. And they did this while they were restored reciting the Lord's Prayer. Kind of interesting. Um, he was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, the Air Medal, and the Purple Heart. Then in 1973, the Navy commissioned the USS Jesse L. Brown, a naval frigate, in his honor, and both his wife, Daisy, and his former wingman, Hudner, were there for the ceremonies. So that sort of ends the story of Jesse L. Brown, first African-American naval aviator.
are listening to Building Bridges. Now we are going to tell the incredible story of a more recent veteran, Adam Brown. Olivia, can you give us a little background information on Adam Brown, who served in the Elite SEAL Team 6? Yes, thank you, Michael. So Adam Brown is the perfect person to talk about during our Memorial Day May podcast. Um, he was born and raised in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and unfortunately was killed in action in March of 2010 in Afghanistan while, while supporting Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, like you said, he was part of the small elite elite group of SEAL Team 6, and it's a true story of redemption and perseverance. So growing up, Adam Brown was described as being extremely hardworking, compassionate, and adventurous. There's a story that his friends and family love to tell about how he was always attempting the unthinkable. Um, one of his major stunts was jumping out of a moving pickup truck off of a bridge and into the lake, so very adventurous. Um, he was raised in a close-knit family, straight-A student, and was a very successful high school football player. Unfortunately, his life took a turn after high school when he became a criminal and drug addict. He became addicted to crack cocaine and meth and had 11 felony charges, including um, drugs, theft, and weapons charges. So fortunately, a judge gave him a choice, jail or rehab, and he chose rehab. He completed the program, he relapsed, he recovered again. Um, then later into his 20s, he met his wife, had children, um, committed to having a life of being drug-free. You know, Olivia, this, this is an interesting story because 11 felony charges. I, I don't know how many people will be able to escape that. But uh, it seems this, this, is, this is interesting, and uh, i just like to move on. So, Olivia, how did he begin, or begin his career in the Navy? Yes, when you consider that he, he was a drug addict and he was able to clean up his life and eventually become a Navy SEAL, um, it is a true um, inspiring story. He had always been interested in the military. He actually wanted to join right after high school, but his parents convinced him to wait until after college. Um, so once he was drug free and cleaned up his life, he decided to visit a Navy recruiting office. Initially, they balked at his rap sheet and prior drug use, but he knew another recruiter personally, and he was able to vouch for Adam Brown's character. So he was sent to SEAL Team 4 for training. Um, actually, during training, he suffered an accident when a knife ended up in his eye. Um, wow. During the training, he just covered up his eye and continuing on. It wasn't until a little bit later he, he did lose um, his entire right eye, which was actually his dominant eye. So instead of giving up, he actually just taught himself how to shoot with his left eye while at SEAL Sniper School. And he made it a goal to join the elite SEAL Team 6, which is extremely difficult just to even be admitted into the uh, training. And then it has about a 70% failure rate for training. Um, and so the fact that he was able to do that with just one working eye is pretty incredible. I mean, um, this, is, this is just you know, amazing. This guy's life is just amazing. Teach, 
teaching yourself to shoot with just one eye, right? Yes. And, and trying to join the elite. Um, I, I like to know more. Well, well, Olivia, let, let's let's go on. But it's it's getting very interesting to me. This this is a guy that is very courageous and bold. Did he sustain any further injuries? I mean, while serving in the military. So yes, he actually did. And not only is he going to. Um, continue on with just the use of one eye. During his deployment to Afghanistan in 2005, he was actually in a Humvee accident that rolled over and crushed his entire right hand, again, his dominant hand. Um, after the accident, he, you know, he got out of the vehicle, pressed on and continued moving his men out of the accident. It wasn't until about 20 minutes later that um, the soldiers around him kind of made him stop and uh, notice that his hand was completely mangled and he was actually missing fingers. So the doctors were able to completely reattach his fingers, but he never regained control or feeling in his right hand. And he could have been honorably discharged from the military after these two extremely life-changing accidents, but instead he taught himself how to shoot and fully use with, um, you know, have full mo mobility with his left hand. And he became the first SEAL to first attempt, and he also will pass the training with only one eye and one working hand. One eye and one working hand, you know, um, anyway, t t tell, tell us more about his career as a SEAL. So he continued his work in Afghanistan as a Navy SEAL. He sustained more injuries, including a broken back and two broken ankles. He was especially known for being a very fun-loving, compassionate person. Um, he was always trying to pass out clothing and supplies to civilians in Afghanistan. He would um, frequently use his um, spare time playing with the children in the streets. Unfortunately, um, as we are discussing Memorial Day, he was killed in action in March of 2010 during a raid on a high-level Taliban leader's compound. His fellow SEALs were able to get him out of the line of fire, but unfortunately he died later that day from his injuries. So Adam Brown is truly an American hero and such a true inspiration and a great story for overcoming obstacles and never giving up on your goals. I think anyone can attest to that and a truly a great man to celebrate this Memorial Day. Yeah, I think you said it all, Olivia. Uh, the, the the guy is a hero, and his story is very inspirational. And in terms of overcoming challenges, we can look up to him uh, because he was able to do that. Uh, this this is inspirational. Uh, Olivia, is there anything else that you can attest to this guy's uh, character? I know you love him because you are. I know, Arkansas, that connection is there. <laughs> but just to round it up for us, anything that you want to say? Yes, I am from Arkansas. I, I love that he is from Arkansas as well. He's a big Arkansas Razorback fan. But I truly think just it, looking at him as an inspiration for someone who has had so much to go up against and never given up. So I am proud to honor and have memory of Adam Brown. So thank you, Michael.
Oh, you're welcome. A very true inspirational story. Thanks very much, Olivia. You are listening to Building Bridges. Thank you for joining us on Building Bridges. I also want to thank Ian Freed, Olivia Dombowski, and John Cheeseman for joining us today. As always, I'm Joe Garrity, the host of Building Bridges. Special thanks to our editor, Daniel Pineda, and David Moran for his original theme music. This has been Building Bridges, a close-up teacher program production, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.